Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the producer and host of today's podcast, and I am pleased to have Esther E. Hernandez, uh, Alicia Yvonne Estrada, and Karina Alvarado with me to discuss their co-edited volume, U.S. Central Americans, Reconstructing Memories, Struggles, and Communities of Resistance, published by the University of Arizona Press in 2017. Esther Hernandez is Associate Professor of Chicana and Chicano and Latino and Latino Studies, Latina and Latino Studies, at CSU Los Angeles. Her work focuses on Central Americans, evolving identities, community formation, and social and economic adaptions. She has published in the Journal of American Ethnic History and Economy and Society, and also serves on the Executive Board of the Coalition for Human Immigrant Rights of Los Angeles. Alicia Yvonne Estrada is Associate Professor of Chicana and Chicano Studies at CSU Northridge. Her research focuses on Maya cultural productions in Guatemala and the U.S., and she has published in Romance Notes, Latino Studies, and Revista Canadiense de Estudios Hispanos. She is also a collaborator, collaborator with the Maya radio program Contacto Ancestral on KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. And Karina Alvarado is a visiting lecturer in the Cesar E. Chavez Chicano and Chicana Studies program uh, at UCLA. Her work centers on intercultural and gendered Latino and Latina narratives, cross-textual representations of Latinidad, and U.S. Central American transnational cultural reproductions. She has published in studies in 20th and 21st century literature, Latino studies, and ISTMO Denison. All right, I think I got all that right, so you guys can correct me if... Uh, if that's wrong, but I want to welcome everyone to New Books in Latino Studies. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Okay, so to begin, how about we take a minute or two? I'd like each of you to just briefly introduce yourselves to our audience, uh, maybe share something a little bit about your personal and professional background. Uh, perhaps we can begin with Esther and then uh, proceed with uh, Alicia and Karina. Thank you, Esther Hernandez, and I'm actually now full professor at Cal State LA. So um, I'm in the Department of Chicano Latino Studies. And I uh, grew up in El Salvador until the age of 12. And then my family uh, reunited with my mother here in the United States in uh, 1981. So I grew up in L.A. in the well, initially in the Pico Union area. But um, basically, we moved to Mid-City and I went to Los Angeles High School. So I, you know, sort of was in the center of L.A. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and uh, I graduated from Los Angeles High School and I went to UC Irvine where, where I did my master's and my Ph.D. Um, I'm Alicia Estrada. Uh, just like Esther, I just got promoted to full professor, too. Ah. Um, <laughs> I, um, I came to Los Angeles in 1981 when I was eight years old from Guatemala. Uh, my dad initially migrated. My dad was a fireman, and we he initially migrated in 1977 to New York and then Chicago. And then, um, you know, by 1980, uh, the Civil War in Guatemala was um, at its height or beginning its height. Uh, 
And so the move was supposedly temporary. And we moved to Los Angeles because um, for my father, it was sort of closest to the weather in the coast. He didn't want us to have to endure the winters of Chicago and of New York. Mm-hmm. And um, I grew up in Westlake MacArthur Park. That's where we that's where we lived uh, for a bit over a decade. And um, and then we moved to Highland Park, where I reside now. And back before it was gentrified, uh, Highland Park also had a Guatemalan uh, community. There were, you know, Guatemalan bakeries. There were Guatemalan um, stores and um and my parents liked that. And, um, of course, we all know that then gentrification came in. And those were some of the first businesses that were shut down. Um, I left to UC San Diego and I worked with um, Rosaura Sanchez and Jorge Mariscal there. And there were the folks who really sort of told me about graduate school. I didn't, I didn't really know about it as first generation. And... Um, I, I knew I wanted to write about Guatemala. I knew I wanted to write about, you know, people that I was very close to uh, from, um, you know, their friends and, um, and relatives of the Maya community. And um, so I left to um, UC Santa Cruz. And um, then I came back to finish my dissertation and I was invited to lecture um, at CSUN. And then I ended up just kind of, you know, staying at CSUN uh, on a tenure track position. And I've been there since. Um, 2003 when I was a grad student, I was lecturing, and then 2006 when I got hired. So hello, my name is Karina Oliva Alvarado, and uh, currently, well, I've been for the last five years at UCLA in the Chicano Studies Department, and what's really exciting about that is that I was asked to develop um, four classes around U.S. Central American topics, and so I've been able to I designed four classes, um, one on racial constructions, looking at the diversity in Central America, because oftentimes with Central America, we uh, typify it as a mestizo nations or or a region of mestizo nations, um, erasing all of its diversity. Um, And so we began there looking at the diversity within Central America. And then, of course, as it relates to the diasporas in the United States, I also developed a class on cultural production, and that is because I truly believe in the um, um, Chicano statement of la cultura cura. And so we look at artists, uh, we look at different forms of cultural production, um, film, uh, music, food practices, and how they inform uh, Central American identity, but then also how they help a community stay connected to uh, their heritage from Central America. And so looking at different forms of assimilation, for example, and it's a it's kind of like a process of discovery for many of the students. Uh, my last class I designed was uh, on literature. Um, now, I also am Salvadoran, Salvadoran immigrant. I came to the United States at a young age when I was five years old. And I think that I typify the experience of um, Central American immigrants. My first point of entry was the uh, Union and Westlake, and I grew up there. I grew up there until the age of 18, and then I, as a young adult, that's when I moved out uh, into uh, other areas like San Gabriel and uh, Almani, South Almani, West Covina, etc. 
Um, so my identity still um, kind of the formative right experience that I had was actually um, and so I got to witness its transformation from the time that it had only like we've got a seagull restaurant was the only Salvadoran restaurant you could go to uh, across MacArthur Park um, to now where it's it's a hub right it's a hub for Central Americans. Um, I didn't go to school or to college until a late age. I had focused on, I, again, I typified the experience of immigrants, I believe. And so um, I was working class, just very focused on, on labor and on family and on um, my domestic work, et cetera. And meaning as a as mother and as a parent uh, and as a wife. And so I didn't return to school until a late age. And... Um, I often like to tell my students that I was a transfer student from uh, East Los Angeles Community College. This actually empowers them. And then I transferred to UC Berkeley. And at UC Berkeley, I was following a trajectory of uh, literature. I'm, I love the humanities. But um, I also went through a process of self-discovery as I read uh, African-American literature, uh, Chicano literature. Um, I began to ask, where is U.S. Where are the U.S. Central American writers? And so um, that led me then to my Ph.D. And so that is what the focus of my uh, Ph.D. in ethnic studies uh, at UC Berkeley was uh, the comparative uh, look at Chicano literature and um, U.S. Central American. Well, thank you each of you for those uh, introductions. And it, it sparked my curiosity in regards to how the uh, this book came together. I'm not sure if one of you took the lead, but could you explain that process uh, about how this collection eventually uh, came together from start to finish? I think it was a collective venture. We were all working, or our community is working around the same topic, same issues, exploring it, of course, through our own perspectives and angles, etc. And we had already been in conversation for a few years, right, Alicia and Esther, uh, in regards to our work. So if one of you wants to... Um, Follow through with that. I mean, our conversations. We've had several conversations about our classes, both um, at conferences. But I think the the point where this anthology sort of started taking shape was we used to meet at the Homegirl Cafe. And, uh, you know, it was sort of a midpoint for all of us. And so we would meet there. And that's where we started sort of shaping um, how the anthology would, you know, sort of the focus and you know, how we envisioned the, the anthology itself. But it was through a number of formal and informal conversations. But I think that the more formal conversations happened, uh, you know, while enjoying food at the, at the Homegirl Cafe and exchanging experiences, both in terms of our teaching, uh, but also in terms of our research. Search. I don't know, Esther, if you want to, you know, add something else. Yeah, I agree. We, uh, you know, like projects come together and sometimes we, we don't include certain stories. And one of our main stories was that we did uh, meet at Homegirl Cafe many times and began to map out how we're going to get this project completed. And um, I think a lot of it was around teaching because we do um, teach a lot of Central American Studies classes. 
Uh, we usually teach not too many, and now Karina has developed several of them, but usually programs have one or two classes, um, unless, of course, it, at, at CSUN, but, um, you know, in most campuses, um, the, the practice is that there's one or two classes, and they're very disciplinary-based, and uh, we all come from interdisciplinary backgrounds, I think. Uh, I mean, I think Karina and Alicia definitely more literature. I am a social scientist, and I uh, have been interested in looking at families and the, the economic survival strategies among families. So that, that was my um, research uh, as a social science um, anthropology student in, in my PhD program. So uh, we had these conversations, right, because it was part our experience as uh, immigrants ourselves and also um, the struggle of teaching about the region and teaching about the realities of Central Americans in, L in L.A. primarily. We did um, focus primarily in L.A., but we do have contributions from um, <clears throat> San Francisco and um, other areas. But. I think the experience of being an immigrant in Los Angeles is really fundamental to who we are as Central Americans and our efforts to uh, nurture our, our backgrounds, right? Because Alicia is Guatemalan and like we're Salvadoran and sort of like having these conversations across the table, right? About what it means to be Central Americanas in a predominantly Mexicano and Chicano environments. And so we definitely developed a sisterhood around, um, you know, the, the the issues that we're facing as academics of working class backgrounds, um, it, you know, in the, the multiple intersectionalities that we're dealing with on an everyday basis and in our classrooms. Right. So definitely um, that's where it all began, I think. Exactly. Well, I was just going to say on that, if we can, if you want to add to this um, as we because we're getting to the next part of the question I wanted to, to go towards, which is particularly the gap in the scholarship, uh, not just uh, in Latino studies broadly, but that's an important one, right, too, but also within the scholarship on uh, U.S. Central Americans. Uh, you started to allude to that, you know, already. But can you um, speak specifically to, um, you know, what this collection adds to both of those literatures? So I think one of the things that... Um that we wanted to address specifically is the voices of scholars that are, you know, considered 1.5 or second generation, right? That's part of the gap that um, we wanted to address in the anthology. And of course, the anthology is a, a starting point, right? Not necessarily as a, a, a complete response or resolution. But in mm -hmm. fact, I think the idea of the anthology is to, you know, to generate uh, more discussion, and, and obviously there are gaps in the anthology, right? We don't have works by people who are, you know, um, writing about or thinking about um, uh, Honduras, right, or Nicaragua or Costa Rica or Belize for that matter. Um, so very much as a starting point, but very much coming from both the, you know, the experiences, but also the, the framing and the thinking and the scholarship of 1.5 and second generation. So in the anthology, you see the works of, you know, uh, of Floribo Lopez, uh, um, you know, who writes about second generation Mayans, uh, for instance, right? And I think the engagement with Latinidad or Latino studies is one that um, hopes to also expand the way that we think about Latinidad and the ways in which Latinidad tends to also uh, function as, you, you know, uh, to erase other experiences and to some extent and, and identities. And to some extent, you know, my contribution in the article also points to 
the need for us to think about how Mayas may not necessarily identify and often don't as Central Americans, right? So as we are also talking about and engaging with U.S. Central American experiences or Central Americanismos, as you know, Maritza Cárdenas uh, points to, we also need to be attuned with the ways in which uh, uh, these identities or these affiliations may also reproduce or erase uh, other communities like, you know, Mayas, Garifunas, and, um, you know, other um, uh, communities in Central America or in that diaspora that may or may not em- embrace or feel that they are included um, in these identities. Uh, anything you want to add, Esther? Well, I think, you know, you you asked in terms of, like, what are the contributions that we um, do to U.S. Latinidad? I think that, um, you know, we confront this on our, in our classrooms. Um, oftentimes when we talk about Latinidad, there tends to be an emphasis on uh, Mexican, um, Puerto Rican, and Cuban. And that was a frustration, obviously, for us as, you know, the second largest group in, in California in particular, but definitely in other places like uh, D.C., um, in Texas, right, where the community is growing, and and also we're growing in the in the South, right? Like people are moving to other areas of the country and uh, initiating uh, new clusters in those communities. Um, and I think that you know a lot of the contributions that we saw in uh, the major contributions, for example, the the contribution on citizenship um, by Susan Oboler. It doesn't include the discussion, a discussion about uh, a particularly Central American experience and also about uh, the experience of Salvadorans in particular who have been sort of like in, in this uh, limbo status for more than 30 years now. And, um, and I think that, you know, that, that is a major gap that we contribute to because we want to speak not only about the reasons why we migrated, but also our experience within U.S. the U.S. context, right within the political and economic context context of the U.S., and that hasn't been addressed. And I think again, our our anthology is a conversation about you know who we are as people, um, humanizing our experiences, and it definitely doesn't cover all the topics that we should be talking about. So we hope to see a growth of different um, themes, like, um, you know, talking about Latinidad, talking about um, cultural production, as Karina said, which is very exciting. And in it, we started in, in our in our anthology, right? We have uh, Yajaira Padilla, who was looking at art in, in, um, in the construction of Latinidad, right? From, from a uh, Centroamericano perspective, right? Or, um, and, uh, in terms of U.S. Central Americans, again, I want to uh, reinforce what Alicia said about we really wanted to look at the 1.5 generation um, that we're part of, right, and um, that has this bridge to to build between uh, our communities in Central America and here in the United States. And it was very exciting to engage in dialogue with um, Alicia regarding the, the Maya experience, right? Because when we talk about Latinidad, we're immediately erasing a lot of um, realities, right, that are not encompassed by that term. But nonetheless, uh, given the political context, we deploy it, right? We, we do um, stake our claim within Latinidad, uh, but we um, understand that it definitely doesn't doesn't address the complexity of our citizenship, 
the complexity of our relationships to our home communities and the ongoing struggles that we're dealing with. So, so I think, you know, again, it, it's sort of this exciting moment to engage in these conversations and dialogues and, and open up, um, open up these capillaries, right? I mean, we're not like, um, there's a lot of work to do. And, you know, this is our first, our first effort. And we're very proud. And uh, it was so exciting to share that with my colegas, Karina and Alicia, right? Who um, definitely, we, we broke bread and uh, we just definitely talked about the issues of memory, um, these issues of um, silence in, in a lot of ways that, that uh, we deal with uh, as academics and as uh, members of communities that are highly um, marginalized, right? But that refuse to accept that space. So I think, it, you know, we were really cognizant of the fact that we didn't want to reproduce hierarchies and erasures. Um, and we did approach Nicaraguan and Honduran scholars uh, to contribute and um, meaning also beyond just Nicaraguan and Honduran scholars to contribute. But a lot of the work that we do in academia is about timing and it is about how much time people have. Uh, and okay. so unfortunately, we were uh, turned down <laughs> uh, when we requested work from uh, Nicaraguan and Honduran scholars and others. And then there was an opportunity, a missed opportunity, very late in the game. Uh, this book took us four years put together and um and so it was just a, a couple of months into like we were going to be published soon and we had already gone through i believe the, the um the proofs or the edits and so then it was just really difficult to even consider adding on and so um but like we've said this is a point of entry and i believe that the book is experimental in a sense because uh, I think even the press wasn't sure what the response was going to be. And what this book has shown is that the response is great. The need is great. Um, I believe we are already in second printing, right? Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's sold out, I mean, within a year's time. And so, um, and so meaning that people want to learn about Central Americans. And as a point of entry, we are hoping that uh, another anthology will emerge, will come forth, focusing on the other uh, Central American countries and the other Central American di diasporas here in the United States. Yes, you know, on the reception, it's it's certainly something that, um, you know, I wasn't uh, privy, of course, the information that it's on the second printing, so congratulations. But just in the institutions that I'm affiliated with, uh, I see, you know, uh, scholars and professors, you know, adapting it for their courses. Uh, last year, myself, when I was uh, constructing a, a course, on Latino social movements uh, in the U.S. as mostly a 20th century course. Um, this book became, you know, a lifesaver in a way, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, as I really struggled, you know, to find, um, uh, you know, recent work, and that was the goal of that class, and particularly really find the most recent scholarship on broadly Latino politics in the U.S. Uh, that, uh, you know, connected with the Central American experience in, in the U.S. So uh, just you know, straight from me uh, and my class in reject the other point I wanted to bring up is that it's, it's not just, you know, scholars like yourselves, of course, that have recognized the absence of, of your own voices, but it's our students too, right? I mean, that's something that, that I didn't realize myself, you know, not identifying, not being uh, Central American. Um, the, the uh, you know, absence of that voice and that scholarship. And it took, you know, students, you know, really 
uh, in ways, in, in a very loving way, you know, nudging me, critiquing me and say, you know, you know, you need to continue to add and look harder to find more scholarship, you know, on Central America. I mean, I thought I did a pretty good you know, job putting my class together and spent a lot of time, particularly looking um, for recent scholarship, uh, you know, particularly to the Central American experience. But, you know, my, my students lovingly, you know, nudged me and said, you know, Maybe we don't need two weeks anymore on, on Chicano politics. You know, uh, maybe you can cut off a, a half a week or so and, and add a little bit more. So it's the students themselves is the point that I'm making. And, and we're all teaching in uh, institutions in Southern California. So obviously this is the kind of epicenter of concentration of a lot of that migration experience. But I'm sure, um, you know, as already I've, you know, I received nudgings from other colleagues to say, hey, are you aware of this book? It needs to be on the podcast. You know, so I too have been hearing it from multiple voices, right? From scholars, from students, uh, both about the reception of this book and the need for scholarship just like Thank this. You. Thank you. We yeah. appreciate that. And we appreciate the youth. Definitely. They push us forward, right? Um, I think one thing about the book that um, I think everyone's responding to is that it humanizes us, right? And um, it shows uh it shows the world how it is we are a community, how we are living. Uh, for example, I love um, Alicia's article because it really emplaces you. It kind of makes you feel what Westlake feels like when you go to the mercado. Um, and besides, of, of course, for very critical work uh, re- dealing with race, class, gender. Um, and so it's just I think it's fabulous in that way that it's very critical. And yet also gives you a sense of people, of community, of lives, of the embodied experience. Would each of you mind, and each of you have a contribution, uh, you know, a, a single, your own authored article or, or chapter within the collection on top of, you know, collaborating both on the introduction and uh, the conclusion as well as the broader organization of the book. So the book is organized, organized the collection is organized in two parts, right? The first part um, is generational oral histories of education and gendered labor and resistance literature. Uh, Karina, you have a, a chapter uh, in that section would you like just to summarize a bit of you know what that chapter is and, and how it fits into that section, and then we can go to the the next section with the work of uh, uh, Esther and uh, yeah. Alicia. Well, you know, I coined these terms: uh, Siwa narratives and gynaeologies. And Siwa is a Nahuatl term for women, and gyne is actually a prefix for women. And so uh, you'll find that gyne through various languages it means women. And so it's kind of being redundant a bit, it's saying women-centered narratives of women, basically, uh, but it's a way to centralize the uh, women's experiences, um, the Western Hemisphere, um, and of course, I'm looking in particular uh, at the work of Leticia Hernandez Linares, poet, activist, um, organizer, just a truly phenomenal person um, from uh, San Francisco. And so I look at her work, and through her work, through her poetry, uh, I then explore uh, Prudencia Ayala, which students love to learn about Prudencia Ayala because she's um, a Salvadoran woman who ran for presidency in 1930 when women didn't have the right to vote, uh, when women didn't have the right to vote in Central America. And so we look at Prudencia Ayala and we also look at La Simonaba, um, the legend of La Simonaba. And um, I think that my contribution at looking at the legend of La Simonaba is looking at her through uh, a resistance. So not looking at her through um, hegemonically speaking, right, as just a, a symbol of domesticity and submissiveness of women, which Central American women tend to be typified as that, right, women who get raped, women who get abused. 
abused, etc., um, and rather look at her as a symbol of strength. So meaning that when these narratives are passed down, they pass down messages, encoded messages to the listener that depending on whether you're listening as uh, hegemonically or counter-hegemonically, right, you're going to get a different message. And so I like to focus, um, and especially my students, I like to focus my students on the messages of resistance, right, and empowerment of women. Great. Okay. And so, and so that fits within the first section. The first section is more, uh, you know, it, it has oral histories is it, uh, and narratives in particular. It's focusing through that lens. I think the, the second part, um, a bit more on the cultural production side and am I getting this right? Or in um, particularly in the, the way the, the volume is divided into those two sections, what's really that organizing, you know, say premise of the, of the first section, as opposed to the second one, which your work Esther and uh, Alicia, your two chapters are in there. Yeah, I think you're right. In the first section, we try to look at the oral histories and look at sort of like the long history of our communities. And um, in the second part, we kind of looked at cultural production. And my contribution had to do with what was happening at Caresen, one of our hubs, right, of of, uh, social movement activism and um, immigrant rights uh, advocacy. And I kind of came into that space um, sort of looking for our narratives. And um, what I found was uh, a narrative of the history of the war, uh, a visual archive that was present there at that time. And um, it had uh, photography. It had testimonials. And um, Judy Baca was uh, basically doing a mural in in there that still exists, right, Um, looking at the the um, history of Central American migration. And um, so I, I came into it sort of looking at uh, the, the, our memories and how, how we rescue those memories that are traumatic, right? And how we transform them into something that is um, very empowering uh, within the space, I was able to then at that time meet Epicentro, which was a group of poets that was... Um, really speaking to the experience of, of the immigrant, the refugee, and, um, you know, sort of like the reality of living in, in Los Angeles in, in the early, in the late 90s. And, um, and so I, I think you're right. It, it sort of focuses on this cultural production that was taking place that it can be ephemeral, right? Because people don't necessarily go to Garesa and to like, you know, um, do the things that I did at that time, which was go to this archive that was uh, there at the time where people were donating photographs, they were uh, donating uh, political posters and um, stickers and things like that. And there were high school students, college students coming in and um, having dialogue about, you know, where we came from. And um, I was one of those, I was doing my PhD and um, I was one of those people engaging in conversations with multiple generations. And, um, and so it was a beautiful space um, in terms of, of what was going on. And at that time, also, uh, Norma Chinchilla had finished her book on uh, seeking community, right, in L.A. And so that was also part of, you know, the conversation taking place, um, you know, sort of like how we moved from um, our, our uh, refugee period, right, to emplacing ourselves within Los Angeles and emplacing ourselves within the broader immigrant rights movement at the time. So that, that section, um, 
I think also is very invested in thinking about memory, right? All this is of the, the second one you're referring to? This is the second, right. yeah, the section where um, Esther's art, uh, piece and my piece and the, the others are very much uh, invested in, in thinking about memory and the way that memory is um, passed down uh, to different generations, uh, the way that memory is constructed publicly um, in Los Angeles, right? So uh, my piece looks at these sort of also ephemeral uh, uh, sort of space of the, you know, the mercados that I call the form of, you know, of all these street vendors coming together. Uh, Yehida's piece looks at the work of uh, Caché and his murals uh, throughout the Silver Lake area, uh, in the mid-city area, and um, Maritza looks at uh, the parades, right, the Central American parade, and uh, Flori's work looks at uh, the use of traje, right, of regional dress by um, Maya women, both, uh, you know, uh, immigrant women, but also specifically focusing on second generation. So mm-hmm. how these different... Um, you know, um, mediums uh, help in constructing um, a form of memory, right? Whether these cultural memories or historical memories, um, some of them are more um, um, ephemeral than others, but all of them sort of coming um, into this sort of public space, right? And claiming that space, um, literally, in my case, in my chapter, um, on the, you know, on the streets of Los Angeles, right? Um, the chapter, of course, um, and my contribution comes from um, knowing that space incredibly well because that's where I grew up. Those are the streets that I that I grew up in that I continue uh, uh, to to be a part. You know, I go there even though I live in Highland Park now. I go there regularly, and I have a lot of um, uh, friends that um, participate, um, you know, in different ways, either by you know consuming things uh, uh, there or selling. Uh, being part of the vendors that sell or or the business owners um, around the the area. And it came also, you know, uh, the chapter uh, was thinking about also the ways in which under these very strict um, anti-immigrant laws and particularly the layers of discrimination and racism that indisposability that particularly Maya, undocumented Maya immigrants face, um, there's different sort of strategies of survival uh, that are employed. And those strategies of survival include um, some forms of mobility or accessing some types of mobility uh, throughout the city. And so um, I also wanted to think about, just in thinking about the works on the Maya diaspora, oftentimes what has been published um, focuses on these more traditional forms of organizing and networking. So people organizing through church or through hometown associations. And I'm interested in thinking about other ways in which Amaya is organized um, in Los Angeles. And so, you know, this space, the creation of this space that comes out, you know, organically uh, for me is another example of creating networks, right? So in the chapter, I talk about how, you know, and I've, you know, witnessed this many, many times, how certain stores or certain vendors provide um, information, how the, you know, the light posts are uh, places that, you know, uh, advertise, um, you know, mo- different ways of moving through either the city or the country, right? They they provide um, taxis to go from Los Angeles to um, South Carolina or New York, right? Uh, they provide um, information about uh, housing 
um, at one of the stores that I visit regularly, which was one of the first stores to sell um, Maya um, textiles for women, right? And now we see a lot more women wearing their textiles publicly, their their trajes publicly. Um, and Gloria's uh, piece expands that um, that conversation. But one of the first stores that you know that began to sell those uh, regional clothing um, specifically for the consumption of Maya women and children. Um, you know, there's information about after school programs. And so they serve more than just businesses. They serve also a space for creating networks and a space for uh, for there to be a sense of community, very much like um, the ways that those spaces are created and become important in Guatemala. Um, it also, uh, uh, you know, for me, it's also thinking about how those cultural practices, those social practices are part of a memory that are passed down through sort of embodied uh, practice, right? Um, that, you know, I see different generations that live in the area participating in, right? So not just the, the first generation that immigrates, but also the children that are that have been born in the United States that are part and that live in those communities or that live specifically in West Lake MacArthur Park. I mean, we have um, vendors throughout Los Angeles and that's been part of the history of Los Angeles, right? Um, and also the criminalization of those vendors um, has been part of the history of Los Angeles, but not in the same way that they concentrate in those, um, you know, in those in that part of L.A., right, in those, you know, those couple of city blocks um, and on those days and the kinds of services that they provide for a community that it's incredibly marginalized, both in the context of of the U.S., but also in the context of, you know, non-Indigenous uh, immigrant communities. So um, the effort was, you know, to contribute and to think about other ways of of, of memory, of, of creating a historical memory or memory, but also in thinking about different ways that step away from sort of traditional Western uh, uh, ways of thinking about organizing and, and, and creating community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the comments and the, the both your comments about the contributions that focus particularly on memory, um, you know, and even the, the earlier, you know, section with uh, oral histories and, and literature, you know, speak to strike me as, you know, this effort, <clears throat> again, all that's occurring mostly right in, in Los Angeles, among 1.5 and, and second generation uh, migrants, uh, this, this effort to, you know, establish and preserve a, a history um, you know, right, that, that also creates a, a basis of identity. As I tell a lot of my students, uh, you know, I'm a historian by training, and one of my favorite definitions of history is that it's the stories that we tell about ourselves to give ourselves a sense of identity, right? Uh, and that, you know, this is particularly, you know, pertinent, I think, to not only the broader Central American community, but in Los Angeles, a place that is so dominantly viewed as Mexicano or Chicano, Right. So you see these, you know, the second half of the book focusing on these various types of cultural production, which are, again, efforts, you know, to establish a, you know, a sense of history and to pass that on. Right. These cultural practices, practices, whether it's, you know, um, through, you know, weavings or right, textile type of like, work or public art, things of that sort. Right. That are both a, a teaching kind of mechanism, but also a way to preserve culture and pass it on. And again, in a space where you feel right, that that you're, you're not, your own presence isn't really recognized, right? Because again, of the more, you have, you have the dominant hegemony, if you will, of, uh, you know, American, so-called Anglo-American culture broadly that shapes the nation and maybe even our state. Um, but then within a very Latino or majority minority space that is defined particularly as Chicano and Mexicano. 
But I think also the, the fact that, you know, in Los Angeles, you, you also have, in the context of Guatemalans, the largest Guatemalan community outside of Guatemala is in Los Angeles, right? And if we think about, um, you know, there are no hard census uh, uh, statistics in terms of Mayas, but, you know, estimates by, by both other scholars and by Maya activists is that, you know, the majority of Guatemalans in Los Angeles today are Maya, right? So one can assume that largest Maya, you know, population living outside of, of, of Guatemala, it, you know, it, from Guatemala is in Los Angeles. So it is that hegemony, but it's also the fact that there's so many more of us here that allows to create these sort of spaces, because this is certainly not the case, say, you know, Maya's living in, in, in Georgia or Maya's, you know, living in, in Postville, Iowa, right? Um, it, that's very sort of different sort of conditions for them to be able to have a space, say like the Mercado or like, you know, the radio show Contacto Ancestral. So also, you know, the, the large number uh, of, of Guatemalans and of Mayans living here allow for those types of dynamics to take place. So you're right. In some ways, it's, 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 a, it's a way of, of contesting um, and, and, and creating a space within these different hegemonies. But it's also, I think, it, it's 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 allowed or it's it's created because of the number of us that that have that live uh, in Los Angeles. So the community itself uh, allows for that to for those different articulations to happen. Right, Karina and Esther, would you? I mean, this is kind of similar, right, for the Salvadoran community, right, being concentrated so much in Los Angeles as well, right? Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to address the, the question of history and memory. And I think that, well, my work addresses that in the sense that history is often treated as um, uh, static, as something that's static, something that is official, and something that is um, unchanging. And uh, history stays in the past, so to speak. Uh, whereas memory, and we all work with cultural memory, post-memory, etc., um, memory is the living presence. It is the oral cultures and it is the embodied experiences of, of people today as they um, negotiate those histories and themselves within um, our spaces, right? The, the spaces that they embody. And so in that way, I think that there is, there is definitely a bridge between the first part, which focuses on narratives um, and, um, for example, Stephen Osuna looks at the oral histories and he says, the, you know, the persistence, right, of those um, oral histories and those memories. Um, and the second part, which is on cultural production and spatiality. Um, and so I think that, for example, my work uh, tries to disrupt the way that history has functioned in the way that in looking at Central America, it's been historicized in a way that for one, we all agree, is, is sensationalist. Um, it's also been historicized in a way that really doesn't capture the embodied experiences of people and um, who we are, right, as, as people. Um, and so that's what we are try to emphasize with the book. And in looking at Salvadoran communities here in Los Angeles, we, you know, we have to realize that we can't, right? We, I don't even like to say that because um, Los Angeles has Garifuna communities, has um, uh, Guatemalan communities. Again, it is so diverse and it is so rich. Um, and I think that what is really important for us right now at this moment is the question of TPS, the question of expulsions, and really um, the question of, of immigration, 
right? And how immigration is impacting our lives at this very moment as we speak. So um, I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Esther, because I know that, of course, with the, the work that you do with um, Carissa and Gila. No, I, I think what you both said about the issues of memory, that's what brought me to the space of Carecen, right? Um, and it was, uh, again, the, the fact that our histories have been um, submerged. They've been um, it, it just even our presence as, as uh, you know, people with um, different types of status, right? Um, not recognized as refugees, not recognized as um as immigrants, right, or legitimate immigrants. Um, and I think, you know, regardless of what our own personal experience is, whether we, you know, are citizens or we were born in the U.S. or or uh, we came as undocumented to the United States, I think that just that history of our community is so, um, it bears on, on our testimonies, it bears on our experience, it bears on, on um, everything that we are about and also how we engage with, um, you know, the, the, the public politics of the U.S., of, uh, of California, or, you know, uh, I think that that's uh, really critical for us to consider. And I think one of the, the main issues that came out of our collective um, work in the anthology was this desire, right, to embody our experiences, but also to speak back, right, like our presence as academics our presence as uh, women in the academy, um, our presence as members of these communities with multiple um, multiple citizenships, right, um, uh, is, is really something that we wanted to emphasize through our work. And I think that each one of the contributions really spoke to that because our histories have not been told, uh, that not that they can be told fully because of the ways in which we were dispersed and in the ways in which we were um, uh, under attack, right? Um, and uh, the ways in which our lives, you know, with the uh, issue of Guatemala, right? Like the genocide with just in general, the, the uh, situation that gave rise to our presence in, in um, LA or, in, or contemporary LA, if you want to call it that. So I think, um, you know, I, I think if both of you have made the points, right? That we wanted to speak back to this issue of this possibility we wanted to speak back of uh, this issue of our legitimacy, right, as as human beings, as um, as political beings as well, right? Because there's also that as part of our histories, right? Um, what is legitimate political action within our communities is something that is also in question in many um, different time periods that that we're dealing with, and um, and I think you know this desire, right, to uh, to talk about these traces, right? Like, trazar la historia, trazar la historia, right? That is, um, it, it's problematic for us because of the fact of the way we occupy space, uh, the way that we are um, allowed into certain spaces, right? Or like the way that we are even part of educational systems and, um how, how our knowledge and our experience gets institutionalized within the curriculum. Um, you know, those are the kinds of issues that we're dealing with that are interconnected, right? They're interconnected with um, how uh, the histories of our communities came to be, um, you know, at the epicenter, as you said, right? Like of LA. 
And I think we also wanted to emphasize that, that, um, you know, our communities are not just add-ons. They are part of a system. Um, they're, um, and, and that's something that we've been in dialogue with together, right? And in argument with uh, larger uh, ways in which we represent Latino history and um, the way that we incorporate uh, newcomers, which uh, some of us don't see ourselves as newcomers, right? But uh, we're constantly sort of staking our claim based on this idea of, you know, we're the, we're the newcomers. So. Right. Well, that point you make there on, you know, that, that refers to, you know, recentering, uh, particularly, you know, broadly uh, as it applies to Latino studies scholarship, right? Uh, and even the history of the Americas, you know, the, the central role that uh, the Isthmus particularly and that region has played, right, in connecting the Americas and as well as it's the histories of, you know, economies and, and military uh, and politics, etc. that that's one of the, you know, the strong chords that come, comes to me throughout you know, the, the narrative of the book, you know, if you want to look at it as a single narrative, which is not, it's multiple narratives, but if you want to look at it, you know, one of the central themes and arguments, right, is the, the imposition that, you know, Latino studies itself requires a recentering, uh, and uh, that experience, right, of the Central American uh, is right there, right? It's not an addendum, you know, to this uh, type of scholarship, uh, or even, you know, to the broader histories of America itself, but it's a, it's a way to analyze through another lens, right, and to refocus, right, and, and add, much more, right, to what we already know, and uh, particularly in regards to, as you're mentioning, with identities. And this is referred to in the end, you know, in the conclusion of, right, the pathways for new scholarship, right, the implications of this work to, uh, you know, right, uh, Latino um, theories on uh, citizenship, right, uh, on politics in particular, right, on identity, with particularly, as we've mentioned so much uh, today, with the role of uh, indigeneity, uh, right, within a Central American population. So thank you. you. I think all of you have made those things really clear. Uh, I'm about to go over time on the time that I promised you, but I wanted to give each of you a moment really quickly to share with us a little bit about, you know, your next projects or the things that you're working on now uh, as you continue to move forward and, and be so productive. Who wants to so start? Maybe, yeah, who wants to start? <laughs> go ahead. You want to go first, Karina? Sure. Well, I just, um, uh, one of my most recent articles is uh, Cultural Memory and Making by U.S. Central Americans, and it's in the Latino Studies Journal. Um, and so I continue to look at post-memory, and I'm doing so by looking at the work of, of um, I'm not going to name the, the uh, artist, but I'm looking at poetry, and I'm calling them um, counter-visuals, counter-poetics, uh, and counter-narratives. And so I'm looking at novel, at poetry, and artwork. And I am looking at the way that um, basically the 1.5 and second generation are reimagining um, Central America from the vantage point of the United States. And so the type of contributions that they want to make to history and the type of recuperations that they want to make um, as far as um, our Central American stories. Um, in looking at that, I am also looking at the way that Central American women, we play a critical role and looking at how we need to change uh, certain aspects of our communities. And by that, I mean structurally speaking. So it is a mistake, for example, as, as I say, my work is, is uh, progressively becoming uh, more uh, feminist, and more gendered focused, uh, even though my chapter definitely in the anthology is that. Um, but I'm looking again at this uh, gender double consciousness. And so um, double consciousness is used to explain the contradictions as a racialized person, for example, right, 
um, the contradiction of knowing yourself within your community and what you represent as a person, as a human being within your community versus the way you're typified and stereotyped and looked at, right, through the external, through the dominant lens, right? So double consciousness is that, is knowing both of those lenses, both of those perspectives, right? The embodied experience versus the typification and the stereotype, right? That is projected onto your community by dominant society. And so um, double consciousness approaches, you know, it's, it's often through race, right? Or, or through citizenship, right? The fact that you uh, acknowledge yourself, know yourself to be fully entitled to have full access, right? To rights, to civil rights as a human being. But uh, double consciousness, of course, informs you that um, through your embodied experience that you're treated as a second-class citizen regardless, right? If at all, right? And so, um, and so the focus then for me is, is looking at gender double consciousness, which is looking at those contradictions through gender, right? Through the way we are included, excluded, through the way that we experience uh, our communities and our cultures, through the embodied experience uh, versus the stereotype that is projected onto us. And then, of course, a desire for us, and I, I think in particular for women, to want to protect. Thank you. Um, or Alicia, sorry. <laughs> so, um, um, so I'm working on my book uh, that focuses on the Maya diaspora in Los Angeles, specifically rooting it within um, the efforts of activists, Maya activists in Los Angeles, and look at multi-generations, uh, but also looking at, um, you know, these different sort of... Um, statuses in terms of, you know, people who are residents, people who are citizens, people who are undocumented, and the different ways in which they contribute to creating a sense of community in Los Angeles. And of course, you know, um, my work is is very much rooted in um, serving uh, and, and helping uh, in terms of the different kinds of struggles that Maya migrants in the United States, and particularly Los Angeles, face. Um, especially right now during, you know, the uh, the movement towards, you know, disposing of so many members of our community. So, you know, some of the other work that I that I do is in terms of helping people uh, uh, become more aware of, of the rights and um, through the participation on the radio show. Thank you. Uh, Esther? Yes. So um, I'm actually kind of articulating a project because um, I'm about to start it. And um, I'm looking at um, migration of um, Salvadorans to other states. So I think I'm going to be doing some interviews with people who are moving out of L.A. and sort of kind of what that experience of migration, you know, like new migrations is is about and that comes from our own communities because our communities are moving all over the place and um, I um, have been sort of interested in that topic of people moving, moving to Utah, people moving to um, Texas and even a small community in Oregon. So I'm kind of interested in um, looking at that and um, the second part of that sort of like to, to look at that experience of our migrations is um, people returning home. And um, so I think I'm going to, that's my next project. I'm, you know, first going to start with people who are moving out of California and uh, moving to other, uh, other states. And then sort of like the reality that a lot of people are going either uh, voluntarily back home, right, or they're uh, being deported. So um, I'm interested in sort of looking at, you know, migration multidimensionally because migration has been an experience for our communities, um, you know, growing up. 
uh, we had people moving to Panama, moving to Honduras and Guatemala. And so I think, you know, we again are at that moment, uh, right, of people kind of looking for opportunities in new places. And um, that's what my next project is going to be about, the new right. movements. Right. <laughs> well, thanks to all three of you, you know, for joining you. Uh, me on podcast i appreciate your time so grateful to have this out i'm glad to hear it's in its second printing and it'll continue to do well i'm sure and look forward to your scholarship as it continues to come out so best of luck to all of you thank you thank you thank you so much pleasure talking to you thank you for tuning in to new books in latino studies i'm david james gonzalez the producer and host of today's podcast and i hope you've enjoyed my conversation with karina Alvarado, alicia yvonne estrada and esther e hernandez co-editors of u.s central americans reconstructing memories struggles and communities of resistance published by the university of arizona press in 2017 as always i invite you to like and follow our social media pages on twitter and Facebook. Thank you for listening, and we appreciate your feedback.